0: All right, so tonight we are actually looking, I'm talking about page 51. Yes, I'm sorry. Number four. Oh, I'm sorry, number four. Uh, I don't have a four. Oh, yeah. Christian inevitably become more like Christ. Christians inevitably become more like Christ. True. Yeah. That would be true. true. She says true. You yeah. You taught on inevitability, right? yes, 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 yes. So it's uh, you know it is ultimately what will happen. You know, inevitably, if we make as we make progress in our Christian lives, God may chasten us, bring us back. But there is this progress. It may be slow. It's hard to see, but God is working in our lives to bring us into conformity to Christ. So it's somewhat inevitable in that sense. It will happen ultimately Uh, it's not easy it's not automatic my expression is sanctification is not automatic but it is inevitable so it's not automatic it takes our participation we have to be obedient we have to obey scripture so it's not automatic which is sort of what the reckoning on the finished work of christ's position is there have been some who've taught you don't really have to worry about obedience just reckon on the finished work of christ it's sort of automatic It's not automatic. I'm sorry, I've been looking at all the questions. So I'm looking at page 51, and what I'm saying is, in all these 11, almost 11 pages, is he's sort of summarized what I'm saying right there. So so we got 11 pages here, but I'm going to expand on this, and we're going to talk about some of the things that uh, were in these questions tonight about this definitive sanctification, and concentrating and the filling of the spirit so this is the filling of the spirit so this is Ephesians 5.18 and I have quoted a lot of people in here and I don't have their page numbers and their works but footnote one if you want to see you know the page numbers and the works that I have when I quote these people you can look at that article online there if you want to you want to see when I I got quotation marks around what people say but I don't really tell you where, they, where it came from you know I don't to it here, but it's there. So we have this command, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So introduction here, Paul exhorts these or commands the Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit. We're all familiar with that, I'm sure. But it's not perfectly clear exactly what that means or how we accomplish that. Um, There have been a lot of different interpretations, as we'll see, and I'm going to cite some of them. How do you get that? How do you do that? Uh, there's, There's actually been no great consensus on that. I say recent emphasis. When I say recent emphasis, in my lifetime, especially when I was coming along as a Christian, this was a big emphasis on the filling of the Spirit. Now if you grew up in this church, it's not. (laughs) It's not that we don't believe this command, or Pastor Ken doesn't believe this command, but you'll see why you haven't heard a lot of emphasis on it in this church. But if you've been in other churches, uh, churches where I grew up, fundamentalist churches and other churches, you often heard this. You heard, you know, you need to come forward. Or you'd hear a meeting, revival meetings. I've been in Many revival. How many been in the revival? It's been a revival, and you say, "Come forward, you know." Have you? Are you feeling the spirit? Raise your hand out there. Raise your hand. Okay, you didn't raise your hand. You need to come forward to this altar and get right, you know, and get to filling the filling of spirit. You know, have you heard that before? I can do evangelistic, <laughs> but so it's a big thing. It was a huge, huge, huge thing. It still is in main circles. This emphasis. So this command in more recent times was seen as an essential element, if not the primary element in the believer's sanctification. That was one of the questions. Is the filling of the Spirit the key thing in our spiritual growth? John Walvoord, I'm going to talk about him more, but he was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary. Dallas Theological Seminary is a very important evangelical seminary, still important and uh, extremely important And when I was growing up and christianity and so forth he was the president and he wrote a book on the holy spirit he had three chapters he got three chapters devoted to this subject in the book he the filling of the, he says the filling of the holy spirit is the secret of sanctification so this is the key another place he says from the standpoint of practical value to the individual christian no field of doctrine relating to the holy spirit is more vital than the subject of the filling of the spirit and as I say, this is what you found throughout evangelical literature. This is what I remember hearing and talking about, and people saying you need to be filled with the Spirit, and if you're not filled, you're disobedient, and you need to come forward. Or you know, there was all kinds of emphasis on this. Uh, Lewis Spirit Chafer, Lewis S. Chafer, who was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, and he was the teacher of John Walford. Uh, he said undoubtedly the experience of being filled with the spirit for the first time is a very dramatic one in the life of a Christian and may be a milestone what elevates the Christian to a new plateau and we're going to get that experience initially when you get saved you're on this plateau but you'd like to get up to here to this plateau and you just make this jump here and it's various means but one of them is this filling of the spirit we'll talk a lot more about this John MacArthur. Now I say 1986 because my guess is John MacArthur would not say this today. You may may wonder about that, but he wrote this book in 86. John MacArthur went to Talbot Theological Seminary in California, and Talbot is an offshoot of Dallas Theological Seminary. So it was like Dallas in the West in California, and what Dallas taught, they taught. In Dallas Theological Seminary taught this emphasis, and he was taught it when he went to seminary. I was taught it when I went to seminary, when I went to college. It was everywhere, you know, just this great emphasis on the filling of the Spirit. But in recent years, I mean, I've followed John some over, some over the years, and I just don't think he would say this today, but he said it then. It's one of the most crucial texts to Christian living. Being controlled by the Spirit is absolutely essential for the living of Christian life by God's standards. And we'll come to this question of what does that mean to be controlled by the Spirit? What exactly does that mean? So this stress on filling is very common, evangelical preaching. I can remember being at the Silver Dome for a meeting with the well-known evangelist. Who, I could name him, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> and it was the raising hand, you know. How many are filled with the Spirit here, you know? What do you do when somebody says that? I mean, do you say, yes, I am, or... Well, are you arrogant if you say yes I am? <laughs> How do you know exactly you are, and what do you do with that? You know. Okay, historical emphasis. I say in contrast to the recent emphasis on Paul's command. Is it one? I think Larry is over here, and I'm talking, so I'm. <laughs> okay in contrast to the recent emphasis there appears to be a little discussion of Paul's words uh, in most of church history so if you go back in in church history you start with the earliest writers they're called the anti-Nicene fathers it's from the Council of Nicaea so the first great conference in the church that kind of pulled all the leaders of the church together was the Council of Nicaea 325 this was after Constantine had made Christianity a legal religion, stopped persecuting Christians. And so there was a conference to decide about the Trinity and especially about Christ. What is his position? And there was a man named Arius, presbyter who saw that Christ was a created being. It's called Arianism. We still have it with us today with the Jehovah's Witnesses, with the Mormons, they're all Arians. It's heresy. And then the Council of Nicaea said it was heresy. So we divide the writings of the Church Fathers up into before the Council of Nicaea and during the time of the Council of Nicaea and post. So there's these multi-volumes, 50 volumes or so of these Fathers. Now they're all digitized now so you can search them. If you search them, this takes you up to about 600, to the year 600. So everything we know, everything that's written. If you you look at that... um, they, uh, there is some references, but they relate exclusively almost to the prohibition on drunkenness. So it's a verse they quote because it says, don't get drunk on wine. That's the part they're quoting a lot, they're interested in, they're trying to prohibit drunkenness. The greatest theologian in the early church, a man named Augustine, appears not to have discussed our verse. Now, I know this doesn't mean much to you. But if you study church history, Augustine's a very important figure. Wrote a lot, theology and everything. And you know, if this is the if this is the secret to the Christian life, you know, Augustine didn't know it. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't figure that out. He didn't get it. Uh, I mentioned Peter. I'm kind of jumping church history to famous writers, famous theologians. Peter Lombard, so writing about you know year 1100, he was a very famous medieval theologian. Wrote a book called His Four Sentences he doesn't mention this text the greatest scholastic theologian this was a group of theologians right before the Reformation Thomas Aquinas very famous in the Roman Catholic Church his famous Summa Theologica mentions the text twice once both in passing once when discussing fast and the second when discussing lust in either case does he emphasize anything about the filling you know as as we see in modern recent times in the 1900s late 1800s Martin Luther Reformation mentioned it a few times in his works. We have his collected works. Most of the time it's about the problem of drunkenness. On one occasion he quotes the verse and compares it with Acts 2-4 where the apostles are filled with the Spirit. But he doesn't explain anything. John Calvin, the Reformation leader, he he references it in his Institutes. His Institutes is the famous first great theological work of the Reformation, Institutes of Christian Religion. This commentary on Ephesians, he says only a few words about it. So he wrote commentaries, John Calvin, on every book of the Bible except Revelation. So Pastor Ken's in the dark. You know anyone Revelation doesn't have Calvin. <laughs> Probably wouldn't be that helpful, but uh, so he just he just talks about drunkenness. That's how he quotes it, you know, and talks about it. James Arminius, who was um, a Dutch theologian. Came after Calvin, and 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 was opposed to the doctrines of Calvinism. Remember we call it Arminianism. He doesn't discuss it. Another great theologian of the 1600s, Francis Turretin. Uh, John, I know these names are not familiar. John Owen, greatest Puritan theologian, references only once. Note that Paul advises to be filled with the Spirit. Suggests that what this means is that the believer is filled with holy spiritual thoughts Jonathan Edwards the most famous American theologian early American theologian mentions it in his published work but he doesn't interact with it he just quotes it he says it sometimes but he doesn't look So, so what I'm saying in church history you don't see much here I say the reason for the preceding survey C is to demonstrate that throughout most church history there was not much attention paid to this particular verse as somehow the secret to sanctification very important you know it's there paul says it you know but it was never viewed as an essential requirement in the believers relationship to god there was no particular emphasis on the filling as an important element it was not considered a theological category now, this is something dr snowberger will emph- snowberger will emphasize because in his notes you know he has we have these theological categories like regeneration sanctification And later we'll get the baptism of the Spirit. He's going to spend a long time on the baptism of the Spirit. We had the indwelling of the Spirit. These are theological categories. Well, there's no theological category uh, for the filling of the Spirit. Not really a theological category. Now, it it was by John Walvoord, and it was by many in the Keswick movement and others. The reason for the contemporary emphasis... The recent emphasis on the filling of the Spirit goes back, actually, to John Wesley. Now, John Wesley was the founder of Methodism. Um, so he's writing, he's living and writing in the late 1700s. Remember, he's a member of the Church of England. He's an Anglican priest or pastor. But he forms a, a group called Methodists. Now, during his lifetime, they pretty much stayed within the Anglican church. they meet at other times. They didn't meet on Sunday morning. But eventually they formed their own denomination in America. They came over here and started Methodism. And in the 1800s, Methodism, the Methodist church was the most dominant church in America, the biggest church, most dominant church in America in the 1800s. But he developed a doctrine called Christian perfection. He believed it was possible for the Christian to be perfect. He called it perfect love our entire sanctification, full sanctification, sometimes the second blessings. We talk about his theology as second blessing theology. So you're saved, but there's another experience, a second blessing. And he thought this experience could entirely sanctify you. Wesley believed that it was by an act of faith. You were saved by faith, sanctified by faith. He said, "This believer, the Christian, is so far perfect, so as not to commit sin," and didn't object to the describing the Christian as sinless. Now that seems impossible to believe, you know. Now here's how he did it. He said, "When I talk about sin, I'm talking about known sin. So if you uh, commit a sin and you don't really realize it's a sin, it's not a sin. You may call it sin, he says, but I don't call it sin. That's his exact words." So it was a not a a real perfection in a sense, but a you don't commit any known sin, you don't knowingly sin if you get this experience. Well, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there's, there are sacrifices for unknown sins. Yeah. So, didn't he read that part? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's really it's hard to believe. It hard yes. to believe. And and outside of Methodist circles, you know, it wasn't, it was rejected by people in Presbyterian reform. by, you know, other circles. They didn't accept this, but he did. There's always been a desire in every Christian's life, most of us, for the ordinary Christian life can be kind of dull and ordinary. (laughs) In fact, Michael Horton's got a book called Ordinary, a pretty good book, Ordinary. Describing that the normal Christian life is it's hard. You're day to day, you're struggling against sin. You're trying to put to death the misdeeds of the body. You know, you're facing temptations and trials, you're trying to make progress. It would be nice if there was just an experience where you could just jump up here, <laughs> above the ordinary, and live on this higher plane. The church where I was saved, the pastor, used to always talk about living on this higher plane he was infected with Keswick, as we'll see, theology, this theology. He didn't know it. He didn't understand. He'd never had any training, but he'd picked it up from preachers and what he was taught, and he always talked about that. We were always looking, you know, well, you come down to the altar and the revival meeting, and, you know, you confess your sins, and you're hoping to get to this higher plane of living, you know, where it really goes back to this John Wesley thing. Now, and interestingly, Wesley himself never never claimed he had this experience himself. <laughs> he never claimed he got it. But he said others got it. At first in his writings, if you read, you can read this, you read it online. Uh, you can read his, uh, his work on Christian perfection. It's actually broken out. You can read it. He'll say that when I first came up with this doctrine, now he was not the first one. Others throughout the Middle Ages and forth had talked about this kind of thing. So he didn't just invent this out of thin air, but he, he really made it his own. He says, "I thought that once you got it, you couldn't get it, you couldn't you couldn't lose it. But then people who got it, he said, I saw they lost it. <laughs> so you lose it, you go back and get it. And this is where this continual going back to the altar and all that comes from. You know, you lose it, you go back. You know, you lose it, you go back. So, uh, um." He didn't actually tie it to the Holy Spirit himself. So when he talked about this perfectionism, second blessing, full salvation, he didn't mention the Holy Spirit primarily. His One of his followers, John Fletcher, who kind of took over for him, he tied it to what he called the baptism or filling. Now early on in this whole movement, people talk about the baptism and filling and they equate the two. They still do in most Penteco- many Pentecostal circles today. When they, they talk about have you received the baptism? Have you received the filling? They don't distinguish between baptism and filling. We, Dr. Snowberger, will hear shortly on this. So they tied that together. Then Finney, Charles Finney, was a very famous evangelist in the 1800s. He was converted and became ordained as a Presbyterian. But he conducted a bunch of revival meetings and so forth. He's very famous for revivalism, starting revival meetings. Now he's considered by many most to be somewhat heretical today because he believed that regeneration is not a miracle that a person could accept, could could be saved without any work, any special grace. It's called Pelagianism. It was a heresy in the early church. So he's not looked upon kindly today, Finney, by most people. But he picked up on this idea of entire sanctification. He had a cohort named Asa Mann, they were at Oberlin College, the college in Ohio, and they taught that, and Mann taught that uh, when a person is saved, they're a carnal Christian, he brought that terminology out, carnal Christian, and then when you get this second blessing, this entire sanctification, this not he didn't talk as much about the filling, you uh, get this higher perfectionist life. And this was very influential in Methodism. So Methodism in America in the 1800s was very influential. And Finney and uh, Mann, they also propagated this in Methodism and throughout. I say, see, is this filling of that that the Holy Spirit was popularized by a very famous lay couple. Wouldn't know their names today, but at the time they were uh, Phoebe and Walter Palmer. I say on page three, they... embarked on an itinerant ministry took them over to Canada United States she was very famous for writing the way of holiness the guide to holiness all kinds of magazines they followed this entire thing about entire sanctification so they're emphasizing that you can come to an act of faith and you can get this experience where you don't commit any known sin you're living above the normal ordinary Christian life you have power so this Holiness theology was is, is this Holiness theology, this Christian perfectionism, Wesley's theology is the is part of in the core of Wesley what Wesley taught and what Methodists believed initially in America. Now as the 1800s roll around, Methodists become the most popular denomination and they become more influential. More people become Methodists. They become more sophisticated, larger churches, and the leadership of the Methodist Church wants to downplay this, this, this Christian perfectionism because on the surface of it, it's you know it's a bunch of bunk. <laughs> you know, you're going around telling people. I mean, I actually met a guy once who said he'd never sinned since he was a Christian, but you know that's hard for most people to buy. You know, and so the Methodist Church today, United Methodist, you'll see on their websites they'll they'll say, we go back to John Wesley, but they've diluted this to nothing. You know, their Christian perfection is not really anything, but you just love one another. But this was uh, this was unpopular by Methodist leaders. And so what happened was uh, people walked out of Methodist church and new denominations were started. And I mentioned here Wesleyan Methodists. So Wesleyan Methodists are different from the Methodist church, United Methodists today we call them, because they kept this, Holiness uh, experience. So there's two experiences in the Christian life. You're being you're saved. You're born again, and then there's the second experience. You're entirely sanctified. Now we'll see Pentecostals in a moment. They have a third experience. Some of them do, but there's a, there's two experiences. And this was this was so new denominations formed: the Free Methodist Church of the Nazarene, Salvation Army. And what's called the Keswick movement. We'll talk about that in a moment. So this was in Methodist circles, but then it moved outside Methodist circles. D here. What's called I what's commonly called, called the Higher Life movement. Remember, I said my pastor used to talk about the Higher Life. You want to move to the Higher Life, and, you know? Well, who doesn't? Uh, William e. Borman, a Presbyterian, so not a Methodist. He opened it to. Opened this teaching to non-Methodists. Most non-Methodists were leery of this teaching. But he opened it up. He wrote a book called A Higher Christian Life. And he taught this full salvation, second conversion, justification and sanctification are received by acts of faith. So this entire sanctification, he talked about it as the baptism or filling and so forth. Another important group, another couple was Robert Pearsall Smith and Hannah Whitehall Smith. She wrote a book called The Christian Secret of the Happy Life. This is one of the most popular books in the late 1800s. We, of course, we don't know it today, but it was a big seller. <laughs> and the happy life was you get this second blessing. You get this new experience, and you're, you're just living above the world and sin. and It doesn't bother you and you know, this kind of thing. Um, she tied it especially to Ephesians five eighteen. Now they all they had begun talking about it after Wesley as the baptism, the filling. She especially tied it to you know the filling in Ephesians five eighteen. Paul says be filled, so you should be uh, going after this experience. It's what every Christian should do. <coughs> that brings us to uh, F here. E. Sorry, a series of breakfast meetings designed to promote holiness teaching during Dwight L. Moody's 1873 London campaign led to what is known as the Keswick or Victorious Life Movement so these are just one right after the other so um, who isn't interested in holiness let's have a conference and promote holiness well, that sounds good right so Moody wasn't opposed to this um so he's, he's uh, in London. They're having these meetings. They were led by Robert and Hannah Smith, we just mentioned before. The Secret of happy, uh, Christian secret of a happy life included other holiness leaders like Boardman, Asa Mann. One of the converts to this was a, a vicar, that <coughs> is an Anglican pastor of St. John's Keswick, a parish in the Lake District of Northwest England. So Keswick... You, this, the W is silent, so it's not Keswick, it's Keswick This wet W is silent so Keswick is a town in northwest England in an, an area called the Lake District, there's lakes around there it's often a vacation point people would go there in the summer for vacations and stuff and so in the summer they had, he organized a conference on his church grounds um <clears throat> Those who were associated with the movement, Moody, his associate, R.A. Torrey, continued to use popular holiness terminology, baptism of the Holy Spirit for the second work of grace. Most Keswick teachers prefer the term filling. So here's the, here's where we start getting a distinction. So so D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, he talked about the baptism of the Spirit or the filling. He used them interchangeably. His uh, right-hand man and the man who who took over after uh Moody, he actually left Moody Bible Institute, and went out and founded Biola Bible Institute of Los Angeles, the seminary of which is Talbot Theological Seminary. We talked about where John MacArthur went. So all right Tory, um, he taught about this. He he preferred the term <coughs> baptism to talk about the baptism. So you get this through the baptism. Whereas most Keswick, most teachers who were in this movement, they they desired, they wanted to say filling. They didn't they distinguish between filling and baptism and they should be distinguished F the emphasis on the Holy Spirit and sanctification became a dominant theme in the 20th century with the spread of the Keswick in America through Moody's Northfield Conference James M. Gray, he was successor successor to Moody and Tory. James M. Gray was the president of Moody Bible Institute took over, Good, great man um, he he uh, He emphasized this holiness theology, directed it more towards the idea of what he called victorious living. So you're moving away from from Wesley's idea of entire sanctification makes you sinless to sort of, this second blessing makes you victorious. You have a higher life. You're not sinless, but you know, you're you're up there and you don't sin as much and so forth. Um, So he was very influential in spreading this. Uh, He said, Gray contended the believer's filling provides power for a life of victory over every known sin. So it still hangs on there, see? Victory over every known sin. And thus is obviously essential to the believer's sanctification. This Keswick theology with its emphasis on the filling was passed on to thousands of Moody graduates. Equally important in spreading G here was C.I. Schofield. C.I. Schofield was associated with Moody and uh, Torrey and others in 1899 uh, he published his plain papers on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in which he argues that one must obey the command to be filled with the Spirit if one is to experience blessing, victory and power in a Christian life this requirement to be filled with the Spirit became part of the essential bi- Christian doctrine for millions of Christians it was incorporated in the Schofield Reference Bible so there's a section in the Schofield Reference Bible on the filling of the Spirit and the importance of it and so forth this was Schofield. <clears throat> one of Schofield's associates, one who 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 uh, discipled him and mentored him, was uh, Lewis Speary Chafer, who founded Dallas Theological Seminary that we've been trying to talk, we talk about H. So one might argue that the greater greatest emphasis for the contemporary emphasis on the filling of the Holy Spirit has come from the theology of Lewis Speary Chafer and his disciples. His major. Influence with C. I. Schofield he started Dallas Theological Seminary in 1924. The theology of which was distinctively Keswick. He didn't deny this; everybody admits this. Charles Ryrie, uh, a a follower, you know, everybody knows Charles Ryrie, Ryrie Study Bible. He says this very plainly in his articles and stuff. Dallas's Keswick theology was; it's no longer, (laughs) but it was. But it's not hardly anymore. But it was at one time very strong. So Dallas Theological Seminary was an extremely important school. It was the largest evangelical seminary, you know, back in the 1940s, '50s, '60s, '70s, the '80s. It was very important. When I was thinking about doing doctor work, I had a choice. I had to go to Grace Theological Seminary, which I did, or Dallas. They were the two schools to get a doctorate in evangelical theology. The Southern Baptist schools were all liberal. Southern Baptist Seminaries were all liberal, all run by liberals. This didn't change to the late 80s, late 1980s, when the conservatives took over the Southern Baptist Convention. We call them conservatives and they kicked the liberals out of the seminary and so forth like that. But you couldn't I didn't I didn't go to Southern Baptist Seminary because it was all liberal teachers and so forth. So Dallas was extremely important. Most of the books that I used were written by Dallas teachers. We know Dallas. When it, we know people like J. Vernon McGee he's a graduate of Dallas Seminary Charles Swindoll a graduate of Dallas Seminary John MacArthur is not a direct descendant but he's from Talbot and so forth so most of the books that I used in seminary many of them were written by Dallas professors Charles Ryrie many, you know, Walbert and so forth and so on and so this was the theology that I was taught and so forth and so on Um, so according to Chafer I say according to Chafer all new Christians are carnal Christians who can move out of their carnal state and begin the process of sanctification only through the filling of the spirit Dallas teachers and graduates spread this idea so where I went to college went to seminary this was what was kind of taught emphasized to greater lesser degree so, what we have is Wesleyan perfectionism, holiness movement, higher life movement, Keswick movement. Keswick movement comes to America, it's Moody Bible Institute, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. Now, this doesn't affect reform circles. Today, we have a lot of contact with what's called reform theology. Uh, on the web, on the internet, if you look at the Gospel Coalition, it's mostly what we call reform theology. And and uh, very Calvinistic and that kind of thing. But that was not true when I was coming to school. I had no contact with Reformed teachers. Westminster Seminary was there, but didn't have that much contact with them. Today, the evangelical world has changed completely compared to what, what I saw. So the Keswick movement was very strong. Now, I've also put down there 1900 because something happened in 1900, the Pentecostal movement. We're not going to talk about that, but I just want to show you where the Pentecostal movement came from. So in 1900, we had the first person really speaking in tongues and the movement of speaking in tongues. It begins in Kansas with a guy named Charles Parham, and then Texas, then finally California, the Zusa Street. There's a whole history here. And the whole Pentecostal movement begins, and Pentecostal churches are formed, Holiness Pentecostal Church, Church of God, the church that Pastor Ken was, uh, grew up in, and so forth. It's all kinds of Pentecostal churches. But some churches didn't accept Pentecostal churches. They kept the holiness part, but they didn't accept the speaking in tongues part. So, in 1900, uh, some of these denominations, like the Wesleyan denominations, the Wesleyan Methodists, Church of the Nazarene, Salvation Army. They didn't accept the tongue speaking. But they still have these two what we call works of grace salvation and sanctification. Or, you know, regeneration, and then the second blessing, entire sanctification. So the West, they still teach this that there is this entire sanctification. Now it gets watered down quite a bit. But it's a special higher experience. The Pentecostals at uh added a third step to that. Saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost, <laughs> or speaking in tongues. So you have three experiences. You're you saved. This is the church that Pastor Ken was part of, Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee. They still have it. You can look at their doctrine. Saved. That's the first experience. Sanctified. That's the second. That's the holiness experience. And then filled with the Holy Spirit or baptized with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. The three experiences. Um... There is one denomination in the Pentecostal circles that went backwards and said, we're not accepting, we're, we're going to reject this second work of sanctification, immediate sanctification. That's the Assemblies of God. So the Assemblies of God only have two works. <laughs> the first work is salvation. The second work is baptism with the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. So they don't have the three. But the Church of God, they got three. So the Assemblies of God, the only one that has two, all the other Pentecostal groups almost always have the three, the holiness component there. All right. You can raise your hand any time for a question, because I'm just running through here. Go ahead. So does Dallas still have that position? No, not much, not really. Not so much, as best I can tell. No, it's kind of faded now they wouldn't deny it that's their history that's their heritage but you don't see the emphasis as much <coughs> it's not very prominent as it once was not very prominent now you're still going to find individual teachers and so forth who will teach that and believe that and so forth I was in a church that had a Dallas grab and I never really heard any Okay. That's it's hard to say. Even if you were taught it, as I was and so forth, it's hard to incorporate it. It's hard to know what to do with it, as we'll see. Okay, how do you get to fit? well let's don't talk about that. <laughs> let's look at the scriptural data. Outside the single instance in Ephesians five eighteen, all other references to the filling of the Holy Spirit occur in Luke and Acts, a total of fourteen times. Two different Greek word groups are used by Luke to clearly distinguish senses when they involve the Holy Spirit, sometimes designated as special filling and fullness or ordinary filling. So, uh, Luke uses two different words, or many word groups, that is related words, but they're the same word, noun and verb. And these two different words have somewhat different meanings as they're used about the filling. The first one is this verb, pimpley me, and co- we call this, usually call it special filling. You can see the verses like this, where the Holy Spirit comes upon someone. Let me read down below, we'll look back at the verses. The special filling of the Holy Spirit always uses the verb, pimpley me, with words Holy Spirit, specifying the content of filling. Special fillings are sudden, sovereign, unexpected, overwhelming, incident oriented acts of enablement undefined as duration, lasting as long as their purposes and situations demanded, resulting in some verbal proclamation. A special filling is not the result of prayerful seeking. In fact, no conditions have to be met to obtain it. Each one is sovereignly given. The special filling of the New Testament is similar to the coming of the Holy Spirit on Old Testament saints to accomplish His divine will. Like we talked about theocratic anointing, theocratic anointing member. The Holy Spirit would come upon people came upon people to help build a tabernacle and, and think, give them special skills and so forth. So you've got these kinds of things where uh, this verb plimple play, play, play me is used and it just seems to be that God sometimes, God's God, the Holy Spirit can come upon someone for a special task, to do a special thing. Uh, and so we have some examples here in the New Testament <coughs> where this occurs. Uh, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. And so he spoke, you know. Um, verse Acts 13, 9, Paul, filled with the Spirit, looked straight at Elimas and said, and said this about him, you know. So you have these experiences where the Holy Spirit comes upon for a special task, usually proclamation and so forth. Now I say one can debate whether these special feelings occur today. I don't think they do. I think they ended with the apostolic age. But the point I'm making here is, they they don't relate to sanctification. Just like the Holy Spirit came upon people in the Old Testament, like Saul, and maybe he wasn't even saved. I don't, you know, many people say he wasn't even saved. Uh, the Holy Spirit can come. God can use the Holy Spirit to come upon someone, like uh, Balaam's no, speak to Balaam. You know, or like Balaam a false prophet, God, you know. So, uh, but there's no command for this and it doesn't involve our spiritual growth or sanctification. It's never commanded. Then there's ordinary filling. This is a different word, noun and verb, same really word, but just spelled differently because one's a noun, one's a verb. Play raise, play race, page six. So uh, I say these references in Luke Acts use the adjective or the equivalent verb followed by the Spirit, Holy Spirit or some other quality specifying the content of filling the reference to describe a quality of life something that is generally characteristic of the person Acts 7.55 Stephen full of the spirit looked up Acts 6.5 the deacons there the proposal pleased the whole group they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit um uh, Acts 11, 24. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith and so on. So this is a different idea of filling what commonly called ordinary filling and it describes more a quality of a life. We see this person, we look at it, we see faith we see joy Acts 13, 52. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit manifests itself in certain qualities in a person's life. Uh as I say here, the idea is that of a godly believer, someone whose spiritual maturity is apparent to all. Now this is where Ephesians 5.18 fits. It uses the same verb, except there we were in the previous verses we were just describing the Holy Spirit coming upon someone. Here it describes as commanding or exhorting this. So do not be drunk with wine, but be filled. This verse uses the same word as the previous verses to describe ordinary filling. The word expresses the content of filling. Here, however, in the previous verses, the evangelism the was described as being filled. Here we're commanded. So I'm actually giving you the meaning right here, but I'm going to expand upon this in just a meaning. So I think Ephesians 5.18 is a case of this ordinary filling. It describes a quality of life, a characteristic of a person. They display the characteristics of having the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, as we'll see, and so forth. But I'm going to take a detour here for a moment and talk about <clears throat> this Keswick idea that was very popular in the 1900s, When I say when I was coming along. Um, I say, first of all, Paul cannot mean that the Ephesians are to be filled with something they do not possess. The apostle is addressing, professing believers and all believers are already indwelt by the Spirit. Now, I just say that part because you have had some in Pentecostal circles who have said, when you get saved, you don't even have the Spirit. And the filling, you get the filling, you get the Spirit. That's not common, but there have been some who said, you, you don't really have the Spirit until you get the filling later on. But So that's not it. I say the filling is some metaphorical, some figurative idea. The most common suggestion is that of control one can see how the idea of control might be derived from the comparison with wine in the earlier part of the verse the thought being that to be drunk with wine is to be controlled by wine now this is the, this is the common thing you'll hear if someone is trying to explain to you what does the filling mean well it means to be controlled by the spirit I've said it a hundred times myself a thousand times probably now I'm going to say I don't think this is a good way to talk about it in a moment I'm going to say that but if somebody says that, I'm not. I'm not really trying to badmouth them here. <laughs> I've said it a hundred times, and they're just trying to say, "What does it mean to be filled?" Well, it's kind of like control by the spirit. You know, it's. It's not meant to be. I'm not. I'm not trying to come down too hard on that, but I think it's wrong. I, as I go on to here, this can be taken to an extreme: control by the spirit. Um, I say here, Allison, for example, speaks of the need for Christians to yield to the Spirit to be controlled, pervaded, or permeated by the Spirit in all ways to consciously place themselves under the guidance of the Spirit moment by moment, as I've heard that commonly. And you wonder how you do it, but still. Ironside, Walver, and Erickson describe the control of the Spirit as being sort of a possession of the believer. They use that word. That's a little strange, but anyway... Woodcock says the, the control to the, uh, the, that says this control is to the extent that the spirit takes possession of the believer's mind. Well, that's a little far out there. Takes control of your mind. Anderson and Sosie suggest the spirit controls all of our thoughts and actions. Now, I think if we talked to these men, they would probably talk that down a little bit. I mean, it takes control of our thoughts and actions. Really? Has anybody ever had anything like that? Or is it even possible, you know? Really? While most who use the word control and connection with the Spirit would not agree with some of these descriptions, it seems clear that the main reason for the popularity can be traced to the previously described Keswick theology with central teaching on the total and pervasive control by the Spirit. So it's because you, you come from John Wesley with this entire sanctification and this is the Spirit. You go to this higher level. The Spirit does something to you. If you're living a sinless life, you know, a perfect life, then the Spirit would be sort of in control. You're not really doing your own thing, you know. The Spirit's kind of doing it for you. I say the control of the Spirit is essential to Keswick's view of sanctification, which is called counteraction. The Spirit counteracts the tendency to sin as long as the believer is filled with the Spirit. This counteraction of sin in the believer allows him to live a life of victory over conscious sin. I'm quoting them there. It's an extraordinary level now I'm mocking. This is a mocking statement by me. It's an extraordinary level of control that permits a believer to no longer be conscious of his own sin. But uh, you can actually read this, a life of victory over conscious sin. You don't even you're not even conscious of your sin. Well, you're in trouble if you're not <laughs> conscious of your sin. <laughs> you're in big trouble. Kind of thing, but this is the way it uh, is pictured. The way I was sort of taught now, nobody ever told me the word counteraction back in the old days, but this is what it's called. It's what Charles Ryrie calls it, Chamber calls it, Walter calls it. So we have an old nature and a new nature. Now, there's debate about that. I don't mind using two nature terminology. Uh, I wrote an article about two nature terminology, but you can see that. Dr. Snowberger, he doesn't quite like it as much as I do. Uh, so what, is, what do you do if you don't hold it to nature? We say that you're a new man in whom sin still dwells. You still have the remnants of sin. So you still have the two ideas. You've got the remnants of sin and you're, you're, you're a new person. You have new disposition. So you can say old disposition, new disposition. You still have an old tendency to sin, don't you? You still have an old disposition, but now regeneration brings a new one. And and there's a struggle between the old and the new. What do you do with that? They talked about counteraction. So this was the dominant view, i say, at Moody, Dallas, where I I was taught this theology and so forth. And Walbert says, the filling of the Spirit is the secret to sanctification. See, those who place great emphasis on the need for the Spirit's control Especially in the Keswick stream must determine the means for obtaining and maintaining this control. Now, when I was coming up, we were told this: you got to be filled, but it wasn't never exactly clear how you do it. Two saints says the New Test—he's a—he was a Dallas teacher, just passed away recently. The New Testament gives no specific instructions on this subject. Well, that's kind of bad. <laughs> This is, this, this is to say the least very strange if Paul intends the filling to be the key to sanctification. Nevertheless, people have come up with things. So I've quoted a bunch of authors here who are writing on this subject and they have different things. Confession of sin, desire and see, yielding, faith, walk with the Spirit, don't grieve the Spirit, don't quench the Spirit, confession of sin, yielding, confession of sin. There's a lot of different lists. You know. Here's the things you need to do and then you'll have it. You'll get the filling and so forth. Uh, Ryrie, dedicated life, and undefeated life, and so forth. Now I say here on the top page 8 after the number 10, these are good things. Many of these are biblical, they have biblical support, they're important in our sanctification, in our spiritual growth, we need to confess sin, we need to forsake sin, we need to yield to God, we need to have obedience to the word. But none of them are directly referenced by Paul as as means to being filled with the Spirit. He doesn't really tell us that. So I say the major problem for the Keswick view is it's the, 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 the view of sanctification of spiritual growth is inherently defective. <clears throat> if there is only counteraction of the sin nature, then there is no sanctification of the believer. Now, what does that mean? So, I was taught, this view taught, that you have an old nature that doesn't change, that's corrupt and defiled. You have a new nature that's perfectly holy and righteous. And you have to counteract those two. So you're sort of in a stasis. The filling of the Spirit kind of lifts you to this plane, and you're walking above this plane, but you can fall out of it. you You can fall out of this stasis pretty quickly, and so forth. But the point is, nothing is really changed. If your old nature is not changed, you're not really made holy. Sanctification means to make holy. And so, in this view, nothing is made holy. As I say, the believer receives a new disposition, new nature, but nothing's really changed after that according to this view. Nothing is made holy. There's no genuine progressive sanctification. They call it progressive, but what's, what's being sanctified? What's being made holy? Nothing. The old nature is perfectly sinful. The new nature is perfectly holy. There's no change, really, at all. It's just counteraction. So I wish I have read BB Warfield. BB Warfield was a famous <coughs> Presbyterian theologian uh, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. We know him mostly for his defense of the inerrancy of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture, has a famous book on that. But he's a famous theologian, brilliant guy. He's got a book called Perfectionism. I wish I would have read it in my younger days. It would have helped me out a lot. He says this, God cures our sinning precisely by curing our old nature. He makes the tree good that the fruit may be good. It is, in other words, precisely by eradicating our sinfulness, the corruption of our hearts, they delivers us from sinning. To imagine that we can be saved from the power of sin without the eradication of the corruption, in which the power of the sin has its seat, is to imagine that an evil tree can be compelled to bring forth good fruit. <clears throat> Excuse me. I say, Warfield doesn't diminish the role of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. He says the Spirit uh, that the Spirit dwells within us in order to affect us, not merely our acts. In order to eradicate our sinfulness and not merely to counteract its effects, the Scripture's way of cleansing the stream is to cleanse the fountain. They are not content to attack the stream of our activities. They attack the stream directly to the heart of which the issues of life flow. <clears throat> but they give us no promise that the fountain will be completely cleansed all at once and therefore no promise that the stream will flow perfectly purely from the beginning. We are not denying the Spirit leads us into our acts, as well as purifies our hearts but we are denying that his whole work in us or his whole immediate work in us or his fundamental work in us terminates on our activities and can be summed up in the word counteraction counteraction there is suppression there is but most fundamental of all that is rat- ratification all these one and the self same spirit so there's that chart <clears throat> that I've used before So in the counteraction view, you're not really affecting the nature. You're not really affecting the person, just our activities. But but Warfield said we need to affect the person inside, change our immaterial part. We need to lessen, eradicate that which is sinful and make it holy. So I'm trying to illustrate that by saying that we don't do that instantly. We do it progressively. That's what progressive sanctification is. We grow. We grow. In holiness, we don't—we're not sinless, but hopefully we sin less as we mature as Christians. We still struggle with some sins; some are difficult. But as we look back ten years, maybe twenty years, thirty years, hopefully we can say, "Well, you know, I'm not the same person I was back then. I'm making progress, and so forth." And that's—that's that's what we're—and ultimately, in glorification, then new nature will be entirely, the old nature will be entirely eradicated, it will be glorified, and so forth. So he's saying you've got to change the nature. I say in sanctification, the old nature is progressively being eradicated, the new nature is nourished, so ultimately supplant the old. Ultimate perfection, final completion, total eradication, that doesn't happen, of course, until glorification. When we, Christ comes, when we, or when we <clears throat> reach heaven. So what's the probable meaning of "fill with the Spirit? I'll say although, although the word control is commonly used in explaining what Paul means about being filled with the Spirit, I think there's a number of problems in understanding the filling as control. But again, don't get mad if somebody says to our, comes to our church and preaches, you need to be controlled by the Spirit. Don't go up and say, well, you know, Dr. Combs says... <laughs> control is a bad word. Okay, no. This is just universal. People will say control because they're trying to think of some. What does filling mean? Well, you know, control maybe. Right, that's what it probably means. So, <clears throat> but I don't think it's the best word. Uh, no New Testament Greek dictionary says that this word playrao means control. Though this word the word the word used for filled is used 86 times in the New Testament is never translated control in common English versions. It's true that there's a contrast in Ephesians 5:18 with being drunk with wine. but Paul does not say "Do not be controlled by wine but wine but don't get drunk with wine. Wine can influence a person's behavior. but Paul says nothing about that. Paul contrasts between being filled with wine, which produces drunkenness, and filled with the Spirit, which produces the kinds of things he lists in verses 19 and 20. We'll come to that in a moment. The major problem with interpreting Paul's command as being to be controlled by the Spirit is that it strongly suggests that even though the believer is is indwelt by the Spirit, this latter ministry, the indwelling, the regeneration, is not sufficient to bring about the believer's sanctification. Some new experience of the experience is required. Though indwelt, the believer still needs to be controlled. So this is what I was taught. You get saved, you go along, you're sort of just floating along as a carnal Christian. You need to come to dedicate your life, to concentrate your life, to be filled with the Spirit, and then you can start growing. Then you can make some progress. And of course, this idea is at the heart of all second-blessing theology, such as Keswick. What this does is minimize the divine effects of initial conversion, regeneration, and applies all the transformation qualities of the believer's salvation to some second work of grace, some post-conversion experience, such as filling of the Holy Spirit. But it's doubtful that Paul is actually issuing a command in Ephesians 5.18 for a new ministry of the Spirit beyond what has already begun and is being accomplished by the indwelling of the Spirit. Since our text is the only reference to being filled with the Spirit in Paul's letter, this should caution us against making this aspect the focus of one's entire approach to sanctification. Paul has much to say about sanctification in his letters, Romans 6. To me, that's probably the most important chapter in the Bible on sanctification. So if the need to be filled with the Spirit is an essential aspect of that doctrine, it's difficult, if not impossible, to explain why he never writes about it anywhere else. Now, Especially the Romans. You're writing the Romans. You're writing a whole theological treatise there. And if the filling of the Spirit is essential to sanctification, how don't you mention it in the book of Romans? It seems odd. The Spirit works mightily to bring about the believer's sanctification but, sanctification, but he does so continuously from the moment of regeneration. And this operation does not wait upon the believer to be filled. See, in order to get at the meaning, we should begin by discussing the imperative to be filled. The tense of the verb in Greek does not begin, mean to begin something for the first time, but to continue something. The Ephesians are urged to continue to be filled or to be full of the Spirit, not to begin to be filled with the Spirit. The idea is that believers are to keep on being filled with the Spirit. Thus, as we noted earlier, the phrase be filled with the Spirit is just another example of what we classified as ordinary filling. Those examples describe persons who are full of some quality. For example, Acts 11.24 describes Barnabas as a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. The idea is that a life full of particular quality was a life which observably expressed that quality. So it was seen to clearly mark the man. So when Paul exhorts the Ephesians to be filled with the Spirit, he wants them to keep on exhibiting those qualities that are characteristic of the Spirit what Paul calls elsewhere, I would say, the fruit of the Spirit. This is the natural and normal progress of sanctification as a believer continues in their obedience to God. There's a parallel in Colossians three sixteen and 17 that confirms this interpretation. There Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. The imperative dwell in Colossians 3.16 has the same customary force as be filled. That is, continue to do something. Continue to let the word of Christ dwell in you. Keep on letting the word of Christ dwell in you. The word of Christ means the word about Christ. To let the word of Christ dwell within you means an attention to, and obedience to the Word of God. So note the parallel between Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.16 and 17. Be filled with the Spirit or let the Word of Christ dwell within you. The result is you're speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and Colossians teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, Ephesians, singing, making melody with your heart, singing with thankfulness to your hearts. Ephesians 5, giving thanks for all things. Colossians, giving thanks. I'm talking, you seem to have parallel results here. One is let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. One is being filled with the Spirit. The similarity of language and structure suggests a strong connection between being filled with the Spirit and letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you with the both resulting in the same things. When the ministry of the Spirit is evident in the life of the believer, it is natural to speak of that one as being filled with the Spirit. That filling is seen in certain character traits Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit and certain activities that he describes in Ephesians five nineteen and 20. These activities are also associated with letting the Word of Christ dwell read and the Word of Christ, richly dwell within you, Colossians three sixteen and 17. These activities in Ephesians and Colossians are not exhaustive, but only exemplary of a holy lifestyle. I say in conclusion, the filling of the Holy Spirit is no unique spiritual highlight in the life of the believer. Instead, it is the normal experience of the believer as they increasingly strive to live a life that is in obedience to the Word, to God and His Word. Paul's exhortation is to continue to keep on being filled with the Spirit. Paul encourages the Ephesians to keep on acting like Spirit people, to display those character qualities that are typical of their new life in Christ, the fruit of the Spirit. There is no scriptural basis for a believer, for believers, to seek a special experience, called the filling of the Spirit, in order to begin the process of sanctification. Rather we should focus our attention on living obedient lives that are increasingly characterized by the Spirit's presence. So I say Walbert I think, is wrong when he argues the filling of the Spirit is the secret of sanctification. If there's a secret of sanctification, it can be summarized by the word obedience. Or as Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. And that's what... uh, Mar, uh, Dr. Snowberger is saying in his little box there on page 51. He says, In reality, the idea of being filled with the Spirit is probably metaphorical for humble obedience. Being filled with the Spirit is routinely set in parallel with, in the book of Acts with being filled with wisdom, joy, and probably carries the same nuance. Just as being filled with wisdom and faith are understood as being characterized by wisdom and faithfulness, so being filled with the Spirit is simply be characterized by attention to the revealed expectations of Scripture as mediated through the illuminating work of the Spirit. Questions? All right, thank you very much.